This is an ABC podcast. If you go to a comedy show, you want to laugh, maybe to think, definitely to be entertained. Honey Gadsby's stand-up shows do all these things, but they do more than that too. Hannah's comedy can also make you cry and push you to see the world differently. She has a new comedy special called Douglas out on Netflix. In Douglas, Hannah makes a bunch of very funny jokes about Renaissance paintings. She also talks about getting a diagnosis of autism as an adult. Douglas follows on from the big splash made by Hannah's last show, Nanette. In Nanette, she spoke about the deep trauma and shame of growing up gay in the small town of Smithton on the northwest coast of Tasmania. Hi, Hannah. Hello. <laughs> Hannah, your new show is, is partly named after your dog, Douglas. What kind of dog is he? Daggy's a legato, a legato romano, which is an Italian lake dog, I guess, is a description there. It's just sort of a woolly situation. A woolly situation. How big is a legato? Uh, I think Douglas is bigger than he should be, <laughs> but they're sort of, I guess, knee high. I've got two. Jasper's a rescue. So the hair is strange dog. The experience of living with Logotto is you're never alone. They're just always watching. And I've got slightly human eyes. A friend of mine described it best. It's like they're, they're people trapped in dogs' bodies and they were trapped there by a witch who'd <laughs> never met an actual dog. <laughs> Does that ever get unnerving, having those human eyes inside of the dog watching you? Yeah, yeah. There's, there's a, sort of an extreme sort of consciousness to them that sort of I'll vague out and, um, and, and then I'll, you know, come back to reality and they'll just be staring at me. I'm like, oh, sorry. <laughs> you know that we do impeccable research here on conversations and my producer Michelle has consulted a breeder's guide which apparently says that Logottos are affectionate, keen and undemanding. Well, I don't know what undemanding means. They need to be fed every day and walked and they let you know if you haven't done either of those things. So there's some demands right there. They like socks. They're very keen on a bit of sock which I'm, I'm grateful for because I, I have friends with dogs who are keen on, on under, underwear. But my, my, <laughs> my boys are just, you can't say hello in the morning to Douglas without him going off for a search for a sock as a gift. I think that of all the things that a dog could bring you, a sock is, is one of the least <laughs> yeah. offensive, one of the less offensive ones. So <laughs> I know that you had dogs when you were a kid growing up. What made you want to get dogs again as, as a grown-up with a very, you know, a, a career that has you moving around all the time? You know, I just, I just like the company. I like dogs. I like hanging out with them. I like, I like parallel play with a dog. Uh, I like another heartbeat um, in, the, in the house and it's sort of good company without it, you know, being conscious, good human existence. You know, if you're living with someone else, you have to be got to be a good guy all the time and that's you know it's a good thing to aim for but I, I just find that exhausting <laughs> you talk in your new show in Douglas about getting a diagnosis of autism when did that happen Hannah how old were you uh I guess I get a bit muddled on how old I was because I don't really keep track of that I'm not like a normal woman <laughs> 40 sort of passed me by. I turned 40 and it's like, oh, I'm 40. And then mum's like, you're 41. Like, oh. uh, look, uh, let me think. It was, it was 2015, so that was five years ago, so I was 37, 36, 37. And what was it about yourself at, at 37? Like what kind of characteristics or experiences led you to, to going down that path of, of looking for a diagnosis? There was, there was a lot, you know, it was a, you know, a career of people telling me and I just sort of always dismissed it because, uh, you know, I only had a, you know, a passing understanding of what autism meant and, and that meant I was sort of prone to believe the myths uh, and so I didn't fall in, inside the realms of the myth of what autism meant. So I just sort of always just used to dismiss it. 
Um, it was also uh, my yo-yoing with mental illness. What I worked out, you know, I'd suffered with depression and anxiety, but, you know, as I got older, I began to worry about it because people who suffered bouts of depression suffered it for long periods of time. But I would just have these intense lockdowns um, and since working with uh, my doctors, it's sort of like it's basically, you know, I have these extreme bouts of depression, which really just me being overwhelmed to the point of non-functioning. But as soon as I sort of find, you know, a, a calm, quiet and stay still for a while, I just bounce back 100%. And that just sort of didn't fit with any of the what I understood depression to be. And once I was sort of calm and, you know, had recovered, you know, because it's a neurobiological thing, I couldn't access, I just couldn't access the right narratives of what had pushed me to the point until I began to understand that it was often environmental. And so I, I sort of, you know, began living with myself and setting my own rules and got a dog and then was as happy as a lamb. <laughs> and it was, yeah, so one, the, the, the critical moment of it, though, was I, was I was prescribed the pill by a doctor who um, sort of thought I was hormonal. Whereas I, so I'd always struggled with, with, with um, extreme premenstrual distress, we'll call it. And I'd never had, I, I kept getting my hormones tested and they're like, they're normal. They are normal, whatever that means. Um, but it felt like they were fluctuating widely. What it turns out is that people on the spectrum are very sensitive to hormonal fluctuations. So my fluctuations were normal, but I'm sensitive to it, so it seemed not you know abnormal, so to speak. So I, I, I kept trying to investigate this with my doctor and he just dismissed it and prescribed me the pill and I did what I was told. And... I'd always been on the pill, you know, I'd been on the pill in the past to try and help with it, with moods, et cetera, and I always went into this sort of depression and as soon as I stopped taking the pill, it lifted. So I'd made that connection. I told the doctor, but he dismissed it. So I went back on the pill out of desperation more than anything to try and get some stability. And I got depressed, you know. I went into this really dangerous place where you, you know, suicidal ideation that I'd, I'd, I'd experienced before. And what, what brought me out of that was Douglas, who was still a bit of a pup at that time, just staring at me while I was eating porridge off a wooden spoon at 8pm at night. And I'm like, this is not living. <laughs> and it was that sense of this empathy that I felt from my dog that I sort of gave me an about face because I'm like I identified this just staring at me as empathy that I didn't really necessarily experience from humans <laughs> and that's really the, the the triggering thought that sent me sort of looking more closely at, at, at autism. That's so interesting because I think as you know you mentioned the myths around autism and I guess one of the myths that often there is that it's connected with a lack of empathy, a lack of of connection with other creatures but it sounds like it was that sense of connection or concern that that allowed you to start looking at the way your mind might be working and how it might be working differently. What was the process of getting a diagnosis like? Like you'd obviously had a pretty crummy experience with the doctor who prescribed you the pill. Was it better when you went to talk to doctors about thinking, hey, should we look at whether I, I might have autism? Yeah, it's a dangerous sort of situation in a way because you don't want to lead a doctor for a diagnosis. You want a genuine diagnosis. <laughs> so, um, it, but it does, you know, it does take a while. You have to, first of all, find a doctor, a GP who's sensitive to, to this. And so I, I found a GP who was sensitive to sort of neurological diversity, basically. And you know, and that's that's the trick. Uh, and then you know, there are there are you know different kinds of basically specialists uh, in 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 autism. 
uh, autism specialist, so to speak, and um, and then just follow the the line as best you can. It's not incredibly accessible, um, and I don't think I could have chased that as successfully had I not been in sort of like middlingly famous comedian. <laughs> that's a that's a pretty big requirement if you're going to face some. Um if you're going to look for a diagnosis, you've got to be a middling famous comedian. Well, that, that cuts it, a lot of people out. <laughs> it, it does. And it's not, it's sort of more to do with the confidence that comes with that. And, and I didn't, I never had that confidence. I slowly built it up. Because I think, you know, if you're living with undiagnosed autism, a lot of the time it can feel like you're just wrong. And it, it can, means that you, overcompensate when people tell you stuff and it doesn't feel right but you just sort of go well I'm wrong all the time and so you don't get the help you need you don't ask for the help you need out of shame or confusion or isolation and it wasn't until that time in my life that I was you know I guess at a point of confidence that I could you know push a bit further after people had you know dismissed me. Mm -hmm. And was it a relief then, Hannah, to to be told, yeah, there is something going on? Yeah, look, it's, it's a relief, but also a lot of grief because you've got to then, you know, look back through your life and understand it differently. And, you know, that's, that's a huge undertaking because it, it just means that you've got to reassess everything. You've got to say, well, that wasn't, that was you thinking differently, not being a wrong person or that's perhaps a miscommunication and there's a lot of relationships that went by the wayside because I didn't understand stuff mm. and I didn't have that understanding that I didn't understand stuff. So what what's it allowed you to do differently or what's it helped make clearer for you about yourself? Um, I'm becoming more reclusive and I'm enjoying it. <laughs> <laughs> what what does a happy reclusive timetable look like for you? You know, I, I do a bit of gardening. I do a bit of, I, you know, take the dogs for a walk. I'm learning the piano. I'm writing. I mean, you know, I engage in the world but at a distance, um, you know. So I like, I like, you know, reading and, and you know, thinking about current affairs and, and, and things like that. But I, I have a lot of alone time. So the, the more alone time I have, the more able I am to actually effectively engage with the world. But if I was to, you know, as I was when I was younger, just trying to do what normal people do, which is like going out and hanging out with large groups or, you know, looking forward to Friday nights, <laughs> you know, none of this makes sense to me anymore, but I tried. And it was just, you know, it was an exhaustive loop. So it's like this this term or this diagnosis autism has let you take some of the pressure off yourself to be a certain way yeah um and you know I'm in a I'm incredibly lucky because I stumbled into a career that allows a certain amount of eccentricity uh, I think which brought me to a certain point that I could then get the diagnosis I, I often think about people you know like my life before comedy was really kind of grim and, you know, I, I, I'm just very grateful that I've been able to find the path that I have. But I do, I just, I just feel a huge amount of sadness because I know there's so many people who don't get to do that and you shouldn't have to go through it. Like you shouldn't have to be a, a comedian. <laughs> like you shouldn't have to do what I've done in order to feel a, a sense of belonging. Do you think, you know, part of this is, around the fact that you're a woman with autism and that's already not the stereotype that a lot of us have about what a person with autism looks like. Yeah, there's a real intersection of issues there. And one is sort of autism being badly misunderstood, but then also the expectations of what women should be are incredibly narrow and women with autism just simply do not function within that narrow area. You know, we're supposed to be empathetic communicators but we tend more toward being you know black and white so to speak but that doesn't mean we lack empathy and I think that's one of the you know we're driven people you know on the spectrum that I, I've come to know we all tend to sort of have that same like want to do the right thing that's we're driven by a very strong sense of wrong or right and it can be annoying to people 
Um, they're like, we're just having fun. I'm like, no, but that's wrong. And I just go away. And I'm like, happily, happily, I didn't want to be in the first place. <laughs> so <laughs> it's that, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of a, I find that intersection there quite interesting between what's expected of women and what's expected of people with autism and women with autism don't do either of them right. As well as, as talking about autism in Douglas, you talk about art history. You know, actually, art history <laughs> is a big part of Douglas and was also a big part of Nanette, which I guess is not something we usually expect from a stand-up show. How did you first discover art history, Hannah? Uh, it was in high school I discovered the art books in the library and I, I found they were a window into the world that felt safe and accessible and exciting for me. Like I think I was very lost. I just didn't understand the world at all and I knew that I didn't understand it. And looking back, I, I realised that my peers also didn't understand the world, but they didn't necessarily know that they didn't. I, I seemed to skip the arrogance of youth. Um, <laughs> and art history was a really safe way for me to think about the world and history and there's something about I think I struggled a little bit with written uh history you know my comprehension lags a little bit I mean I get there eventually and I then I comprehend more than most but it really is a slow process and when you're younger that felt like you know I was dumb but I seem to be able to get a lot of insight and understanding through visuals and art and things like that so uh, it just sort of just inspired me to to think a lot more than most other subjects at school. What sort of books do you remember looking at at high school? Like, what, what did they look like? They were little. <laughs> it's really funny though because they're, uh, they're little. They're little like Thames and Hudson's brief histories of you know concepts of modern art, and I, and I still look at them and I'm like, I'm not sure I understand them now. Like they're just full of really. In- deliberately obtuse language, really, <laughs> and black and white reproductions. And I just think it's really funny that I was drawn to <laughs> art history through black and white <laughs> reproductions, but it was baby steps. You know, I sort of understand this thing and then, you know, later on in life, I, you know, they opened up even more when I got to see them in galleries and, you know, it was, I was quite old before I really went to a gallery, but I'd already knew all about art. <laughs> art history. It's like you'd got um, the manual before you had to drive the car or something. Pretty much, pretty much. <laughs> and when you say they kind of gave you a way of looking at the world, what sort of story did studying those paintings and, you know, you went on and studied art history at ANU, what story of the world did they seem to tell you? Well, it was this strange thing where the world I grew up in, art was dismissed as uh, fluffy rubbish, really, just... <laughs> You know, like uh, from a very practical place in the world, you know, town, Smithton was a practical, practical town full of practical people. So, you know, there was that sort of thing you often get in, in, in regional places where the arts are not, like it's the first thing to go. We'll save the football club before we'll worry about, you know, other things. So that's fine. That's just the place, I'll, that's just where I grew up. But then you get into, you read history books and they're just as, you know, art history, you know, just as condescending and dismissive uh, of the other. And, you know, and I just really was intrigued by this impenetrable language and exclusiveness that art history sort of represented. And I really wanted to understand it. Um, maybe in the, in the beginning it was a way to escape where I was from. Uh, and as I got older, it was more of a to bring where I was from up to speed. You know, I, I get annoyed with how uh, elite, elitist as a lot of art history writing is and how, you know, it almost tries to exclude people in order to justify its own existence. And so I was always driven by, like, this is really fun and exciting. Why are you using so many words? <laughs> I think you worked as a guide in a in a gallery or a museum once. How did that go? Uh, no, I, I used to work at a bookshop uh, and I did a few comedy art tours for the Melbourne Comedy uh, Festival, so that was past that. I remember working in the bookshop 
they had at the National Gallery in Canberra and they had a, a Monet exhibition. And I like Monet as well. Like he's a bit sort of, I just like the fact that he built a garden and then painted it. I just really love that. It's like he just built a garden and painted the garden, worked on the garden, painted the garden. I, I'm all for that. But anyway, so this woman walked past the shop and, you know, those of us who worked in the shop were sort of not you're not seen as equals <laughs> to the patrons. <laughs> this woman just walked past and says, which way to the Monoir exhibition? <laughs> and I'm like, it's, it's Monet and it's over there. And she's like, it's Monoir. And I'm like, you're an idiot. <laughs> but I didn't say that to her face. But then she came back afterwards. She didn't remember that she'd had this conversation with me, um, but she was buying her Monoir book off me. And she <laughs> pulled out her purse to pay and I said, well, that's a lovely Wallois. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that moment. Maybe she was thinking it was a Monet Renoir exhibition and she was just kind of like collating them. Yeah, maybe she was just an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> that would be the other interpretation. <laughs> and were you a funny kid? Were you a kid at school and at home who were, was trying to make other people laugh? I, I learned it as a deflection method, uh, attention, uh, which is a kind of a funny way, like most people think it's like people enjoy attention when they're comics, but I'm like, this is a good way to deflect it. So often I'd say things and people would laugh and then I'd have to work out why it was funny. And then once I'd done that, I'd do it again. Like, and that was a way of showing people that I was participating, but I wasn't. Like I worked it as a way of being involved without being involved. Like I find following conversations really difficult, but I can do a callback in a conversation and people laugh and then they're reminded that I'm actively engaged even though I haven't said anything for a long time. And I used to get words muddled up a lot when I was a kid and that's my family tells stories about me. It's about that. And I, I still do it, you know, the... Like I remember when I was a kid, well, I don't remember, it's just a story mum tells, like I couldn't think of the word, like there's the Stanley Nut. There's a town outside of Swinton called Stanley and it has this volcan- volcanic outcrop situation called the Nut. <laughs> but I always associate it with going to this uh, for a swim and it juts out of the ocean there. And I was trying to get mum to take us there <laughs> and I kept calling it the beach pip and it took her ages <laughs> to work out. And I... <laughs> And I did it recently to a friend, you know, I said, I was just listening to this podcast and I was all excited about it so I lost my words and she said, oh, what was it about? And I'm like, mess, air mess. And it was about (laughs) pollution and smoke. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so I still have that thing where, you know, like I'm a visual thinker basically and so my thoughts and ideas occur to me as visuals and then I have to scramble to find the words and I you know makes people laugh so it is funny I guess. Where would lunchtimes find you then at at school? Where were you likely to be? I was really bad at lunch and lunch was a a really (laughs) it was a time of real sort of anxiety for me because I love school because at school you know you knew where you had to be and what you had to do and if you didn't people would tell you until lunchtime or little lunch and so I I always found myself sort of on the outside and trying to join in very clumsily and it it took me quite a long time to work out what to do. I remember when I first started school I tried to join in my brother's cricket games because when we were at home that's all we did. We just used to play cricket in the backyard until it was time for dinner and so I just thought that that's what would happen and then my brother, who's two years older than me, is just like, yeah, nah, piss off. <laughs> Which is fair enough, but also brutal when you're a kid. And so I just, you know, I gradually worked out a way, you know, sometimes I would just walk, just look like I was heading somewhere for the whole lunchtime. And then I discovered the library. People would think I was a nerd, but really I was just studying the indexes or napping. I never actually read a. <laughs> I never actually read a book. Studying the indexes. I love indexes. Like I didn't actually read the books. I just because the index is a, a great way of getting a sense of what the book thinks is important. <laughs> 
It's sort of the same as getting the manual before you drive the car. <laughs> so you read the indexes and you're just like, okay, so this this is the, all the all the subjects that, that are important in this book. <laughs> this is Conversations with Sarah Konoski. Podcast, broadcast and online. Hannah, apart from the, the games of cricket in the backyard, what kind of atmosphere was there at home, especially your mum, Kay? What kind of atmosphere did she try to create among the the five kids and, and her and your dad? I think by the time I came along, I was the youngest of five, I don't think my mum was trying to create anything. I think she was just Survival. trying to hold it together. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, we didn't have a lot of money. Mum was working a couple of jobs and dad was a maths teacher and, once one of my older brothers went to university, you know, mum and dad were trying to support him through that. Things got real tight. I wasn't overly aware of it. I just realised that, you know, suddenly our family was cooking them counter meals at the local country club on Friday, Saturday nights. And so it's almost, I guess it was child labour. I don't remember ever getting paid. But you had, had to, to help out up. too. Yeah, yeah. I did the salads, you know, with the, with the iceberg lettuce and then tomato and then beetroot and then like an orange slice with a split and a twist and a <laughs> sprig of curly parsley. It was fine. It was just, you know, getting on with it. <laughs> but at home it was, it was a bit chaotic because, you know, five kids. I liked it because there's a sense of place. I look back on that time and for someone like me who didn't know how to find a place in the world without being told, being a member of a large family was, a, it was really, I guess, great. It was great for that. When you do look back, Hannah, do you think that your family somehow acknowledged or made space for the, the differences that you now know come from autism? Was, was the way that you are given room in yeah. Noisy family. Yeah, I think inside the family it didn't need a name. Like I was just <laughs> a little off centre. But I think I think we all were in our own ways. And you know, when you got a large family, it's very hard. I think once the fourth kid comes out, you I think parents just lose that sort of you just get one description. So just, <laughs> you know, Justin was the kind one, Jessica was the bossy one. Ben was the funny one. I oh, know Ben was the quiet one. Hamish was the funny one, and I was—I was just Hannah. <laughs> well, I'm number seven in my family, Hannah. So that even run out of adjectives. You get that? You I, do, I got do you even have a name? I didn't do you even have a name? Who is that over there? Why do I someone pick up that crying baby? Exactly. So you're saying that the family started working at the at the country club. Is that where you were introduced to the the ancient and noble game of golf? Well, my mum had been cleaning, was a cleaner at the golf club. So I'd sort of grown up often, you know, on the weekends. I'd go and help, help. And I say that in the loosest possible. It's just basically just hanging out while mum cleaned. And occasionally, you know, I got to put the urinal cakes out, which I thought was ah. just a real, a real privilege. <laughs> <laughs> obsessed with urinal cakes for way too long I just think I thought they were cake adjacent and I <laughs> held on to that even though there was no actual proof of that I really hope you never tasted one just to confirm that no they're very very toxic to the smell and I'm quite sensitive of smells so I knew not to not to try that but I still thought they were cake adjacent so yeah I remember helping you know like I said helping and wasn't really helping yeah. Did she encourage you to start playing golf? Well, yeah, like in the incident, and this is kind of town, if you didn't play sport, you got into trouble. This was kind of a really strong sporting community there, but there's also a bit of roughness around the edges. It's a tough place to live. People are doing their best, but the, there's frayed edges there. My own parents were very keen to make sure that our extracurricular activities were you know, sport folks. And the good thing about sport, particularly in regional Australia, is you are pitching kids into communities that include adults and not just kids. And I think there's, there's a lot of good to belonging to a club in a sense for that, providing that the, the club is in a toxic uh, situation. <laughs> so 
we all played sport. My sister did gymnastics and Justin played hockey and I think the other boys played football. And I, I got it, I went toward hockey and I was quite a good, I played in goals, which, you know, classic autism in the team, but slightly apart. <laughs> and also there was less options. I knew what I had to do. It was very obvious what I had to do in a very limited part of the field I had to move in. So I was all over it. And a reflexes of a jungle cat. I got quite good too. I was 11. I played in the Northwest Tasmanian under-16s team. Do you still and have the to, pennant or the, the trophy from that? <laughs> well, I got to meet Marie Fish, who was the silver medalist goalie, I think, for Australia in I, think, I don't know if the Commonwealth Games or Olympics, I can't remember, but there's this picture of, of me with her in the local paper. But I used to let so many goals through. I was only 11 and the, the you know padding that was designed to protect my legs also left me legally blind. That was so big. <laughs> but I, at one point I was riding a bike and I fell off weird and I had to I hurt my knee. I had to have a total knee reconstruction and my knee just didn't recover. Until I was 21 and had more surgery on it, I just had a really, really unstable knee. It would just dislocate and collapse. And so I couldn't play hockey anymore and I was quite devastated by that. And mum said, well, why? <laughs> I'll never forget it. She's like, well, why don't you play slow hockey, which is what golf was. <laughs> <laughs> you, you became a bit of a champ in that. I think you captained the, the state junior team. Were you competitive? Yes, to a point. I always knew when not to be competitive. Like I don't have that champion attitude, you know, where they're just like, just keep going. I, I just look at the situation and go, well, I'm not that good. So I was a bit of a hustler. Like I knew I was better at playing match play than I was stroke play. You're getting you know, almost play- too technical for me now, Hannah, but I'll, I'll yeah, try to so keep up. Yeah, so basically, yeah, I know, what a wanker, right? So... <laughs> Um, so when stroke plays, when you just play on your own and you, you know, it's generally what championship golf is, but match plays when you, you're pitted against one person in the team. Uh, so when Tasmania played New South Wales or Queensland, God forbid, as a little joke, um, each member of the team played directly against, you know, someone from the other team. So I was good at those because I think I sensed once someone got really bad tempered that there was a weakness and then I just I did something to further upset them. And I'm not really sure what it was, but once someone was playing bad, I could make them play worse. I think it was because I think I'm annoying. I think that's what it was. I think it's because I'm annoying. <laughs> what how was women's golf and men's golf treated differently? I mean, I remember when I'd gone visit my nana at her golf club, like there were day there were lady days and there were certain times that women were supposed to golf and men not. Like it was quite a segregated world, golf. Oh, yeah, they were just training me up to be a wife. I I couldn't play competition on the weekends unless I think we got a tea time early, very early in Saturday mornings, and only if we didn't disrupt the men's competition. And women couldn't be members of the club. We were associates. If ever we played, you know, mixed a mixed sort of competition, uh, ladies had to bring a plate. Whenever I won a competition, I won things like casserole dishes. I remember I won a Baymix once, the closest to the pin on the eighth. You know, like those hand blenders? And I'm like, I'm like 14. <laughs> what am I going to do? This and my brother won a shark, fluffy shark wood cover. I was so furious. Did, I wanted that. Did those sort of differences, did that bug your mum as well? Yeah. Would she talk about yeah. that with you? Yeah, <laughs> all the time. All the time. I didn't invent my feminist streak. Mum was, you know, well and truly schooled in that. She saw it all and called it all out. And she was one of those loud, disruptive women that used to clear the bar. So so golfing wasn't what you went into and you did your art history degree in Canberra. What kind of jobs did you get after you finished your study, Hannah? Uh, I worked in, I kept my job in the gallery bookshop for a little while uh, and I was also a cinema projectionist. That (laughs) Um, sounds like a fun job. Yeah, it was good, perfect for me, perfect. It was just like work in the dark alone. Watching movies, (laughs) it's great. Kind of, 
watching but not in the normal way. (laughs) It's like the index. And then uh, I sort of, I worked, I just started to drift a bit. Um, I lived for a while and I think I went up to Darwin. I worked at the Dead Care Cinema there and I, I really wasn't very good I was good. I was a good projectionist in the cinema. I was taught in very <laughs> niche. Skills, very niche. I sort of lack initiative, and so unless someone really was going to mentor or take me under the wings, I was going to always struggle. And after that, I just sort of drifted very badly. I just was a kind of farm labourer, just working with either people out of prison or immigrants on farms. Was that up in the Northern Territory too or back in Tasmania? No, sort of like regional New South Wales and Victoria, a bit in Tasmania, just really drifted with where the work took me. And it's not, it's not a living wage by any stretch. It's a cycle of poverty that's, it's almost criminal. Was it a a stressful or a, a kind of anxious time for you, that, that period of drifting? Yeah. You know, like I didn't, I think I was busy just sort of disappearing. I didn't have a future uh, that I could identify or <laughs> to let alone think about. I didn't think that I had a place in the world or deserved one. And I, I think there's a lot of trauma around that time, which makes it very difficult for me to look back into it. There's, memory works or doesn't work <laughs> when it comes to trauma. So it, it, it's kind of a, I, I, the more fame I get at the moment, the more, worried I am about that time in my life because people just really want a straight line through my narrative and that time in my life represents real trauma and with that comes a real difficulty to understand it or even recall it. Like it's muddy and it's still fraught. How did you start to plot a way out or find a way out of that murky time? There's two things that brought me out of it, and one was um, I found comedy. Just such an unexpected one. answer, really. When you think about the person, well, you're I just joined. I, I just entered the raw comedy competition. You know, that's all it took. I just entered into it, and I had a go. I didn't do well in the first one, and I continued to struggle for a year. And then the other thing that helped me get out was I reconnected with my family in a meaningful way, and. I look back on the time that, you know, between when I first started doing comedy and really uh, until about 2015, that's 10 years, my sister and my brother really supported me. They let me live with them while I got myself, I can't even say I got myself back onto my feet because I was never on my feet. For a while I lived in Adelaide with my sister and uh, her family and it was incredibly generous. Um, but they never made me feel that way. And then when I moved to Melbourne, I lived above my brother's fruit and vegetable shop. And that was sort of, a, and again, an incredibly generous thing for him to do. And I was able to slowly gather my adult feet as best as I could. What allowed you to, to reconnect with family? when you said that was important, how, how did that happen? Was it from you or from them? It was from me. I asked for help and they uh, gave it to me. And I, that was the biggest trauma for me for coming out. I think I, I sort of assumed I didn't belong or, and that was never the case, but it was, I just didn't know how to belong. So I drifted out and away but they were waiting for you when you were ready to come back. Absolutely. I mean, I'm incredibly lucky in that sense. There are people who don't have that luxury. And the other part of that ladder out being comedy, is it something that felt like it was a good fit right away? I mean, what was being on stage like for this woman who liked to go home at lunchtimes and sit in the projectionist's <laughs> offer of the cinema? <laughs> Just, it's not, a, not an automatic fit in my head. Well, it is in a sense because, you know, that's, it's being part of, of a world with it being slightly apart, you know, like I'm talking to a crowd but I'm not in the crowd and you understand I'm talking and they're listening. 
<laughs> and so in, in, in day-to-day conversations, I'm not really sure how things go and I, I make lots of mistakes and I feel very anxious about it. But on stage, I'm like, well, they want to be entertained. Let me, let me, let me have a go. I was very comfortable on stage, but it, was, it wasn't until I got management that I was able to really do okay because it's an enormous amount of work that goes into being a working comic who looks after themselves. Like there's, it's a real struggle and my hat goes off to, to people who do that, you know, and I did it for a couple of years but I wouldn't have continued. I would not. If I hadn't have got representation, I would not have continued. I couldn't. I don't know how to navigate administration. How were you feeling about your comedy career when you started writing Nanette? Uh, I, I was feeling a bit lost because I, I, I didn't understand who my audience was and what I had to say to them and that was because I was just about to be diagnosed. And that <laughs> once I was diagnosed with autism, I understood finally and that's the point at which Nanette was, I was able to write Nanette. I had this, this sort of sudden sense of who I was that I'd never had before and I could turn my eye to the outside world a little bit more confidently. And I was a bit tired. I was tired. I was writing a new show every year. I, I felt like uh, my career was starting to slide backwards. I felt like I, you know, when I first started, I was steadily making the most of every opportunity I got. But I just felt like it had got to the point where I wasn't getting opportunities, even though I'd made the most of all my opportunities. There was there was no roll on it. But it felt, you know, I didn't. I couldn't keep touring in the way that I was because I was. It was ex. It's you know exhausting uh, you know after every festival season I would collapse and be unable to function so uh, you know and I wasn't you know I wasn't getting anywhere and so did know. that give you a kind of freedom too to write something that could be really different really new well the freedom came with the idea of quitting and, and by that I meant really that I'm prepared to lose my career uh, I was prepared to alienate everybody just to just say what I, what I had to say. Uh, and I'd, I'd basically just decided to be comfortable where I was at, live small, you know, um, maybe supplement my career with a few shifts at my brother's shop. Like I just really that's where, that's where I was when I wrote Nanette. I was like, I don't think I can make it in this industry. So I may as well go out with a bang. <laughs> you definitely did a bang. It was definitely a bang. <laughs> How many times did you perform that show? What was that schedule like? It started off as my usual schedule. So I did all the festivals. I did. Uh, it was unusual in that I started in Perth. I usually start at the Adelaide Fringe Festival, but for some reason it was Perth. And then I did Adelaide. I did Brisbane, Tasmania, and then Melbourne and Sydney. So all that was the same and then I did Edinburgh, although I'd taken a break off Edinburgh for the last few years, but I went that year and then I did London. So in that sense, up until about September, everything was the same except that I was always adding shows. I was selling out Wednesdays, um, which was unheard of in my career, and then adding shows. So at the end of the comedy festival, I'd always done really well at the Melbourne Comedy Festival, but the weekend, uh, you know, I, kept, I had had extra shows during the festival and then I did the comedy theatre after two nights, just uh, two shows in a row in a thousand-seater and that was massive for me, absolutely massive. But then later on I did Hamer Hall, so it just, like, was just huge and so it just kept building and it wasn't until I filmed it that I really first did the most unusual bit, you know, like... Filming it at the the opera, and then I did a second run in London, and then I did a run in New York, and that's when things started to feel really unfamiliar for me. Because even though it was a different level, I'd still done it all the same. But then I did these other things that that's when I really started to feel frightened. <laughs> what do you mean frightened? Uh, because I didn't understand what was going on around me. I knew that I was doing something. It felt important. It felt like I was doing you know, something different, but I was also, you know, experiencing the highest point of my career, but it felt I couldn't enjoy it in the way that I always, you know, had assumed success would feel because the show was so traumatic Mm. to perform. And then everyone was really excited, but I was just so exhausted that I I wasn't engaged. 
in it. I'm only just starting to sort it out now. I think that anyone who's seen Nanette has that thought, you know, you there's so much to laugh at in the show, but as you say, the heart of it is is something really painful. And I think anyone who watches it is thinking, what toll could this take on this person night after night sharing these stories? I mean, what did it do to you? Like what did it do to your body and, and your mind after you'd come off stage? I just sort of shut down a little. Like I just really kept my world really, really small. Um, I think I, I lost some friends, <laughs> you know, because I think I think from the outside people sort of go, oh, you're experiencing success and now you're too good for me. But really it was like I don't have anything left in the tank. And even after, the you know, the climax of the success, you know, I was taking meetings and it's like I don't know what to do with these meetings. They're like, let's talk about your future. And I'm like, I'm exhausted I'm a husk so I was taking these meetings and I had nothing to say I had nothing to pitch because I'd gone into that show put everything into that show and I didn't think it was going to work so I did not have a plan B. So what was the payoff I'm hoping there was a payoff beyond the success and beyond the opening other potential doors as a performer as a storyteller like what were the positives out of sharing that? Trauma. The, the catharsis, the catharsis is lo- the long game. Like I, it was brutal and traumatic to do it night after night, but in the wash, I feel like I'm on the other side of trauma. I didn't think I was a candidate to be able to escape the trauma loop, but there's also the you know, like I, I I'm still sort of working out what. It, what I've done to myself. I think I think I'm a health, I have a healthier sense of self than when I went into it. And now that the exhaustion's starting to sort of wash away. Did the way that the audience embraced that show and responded to it, did that help with that? Was that something that you could kind of feel or, or, or taste, the real affirmation and appreciation that people have for that show? You know, it can't be underestimated. Uh, often the idea of trauma is something that people have to get through themselves and I think that's a very dangerous and limited idea. When you feel traumatised by something, you feel unsafe and that lack of safety is something that other people have to help you feel as well. So it's not just a matter of you making yourself feel safe. You have to feel safe in the community you, you live in and that's what this show kind of forced me to reckon with and, and my audience is like I said a thing and much to my surprise, my community said, oh, sorry, and that that is healing. Your mum came along the night that the show was filmed at the Opera House. Could you see her from, <laughs> from on stage? I could. It was such a mistake. Everyone felt so bad. But my mum has such distinctive hair, <laughs> just a shock of white hair, and they gave her good seats. But it, just because the lights are up slightly for the filming effect, it's not complete darkness. It just meant that I could see her and I tried not to look, but she was like front and centre. And when the really tough stuff, you know, started, I started to talk about the really tough stuff, I saw her shoulders slump and that was incredibly affecting for me. I, you know, I think if you watch the special, I haven't watched the special. I don't need to. I was there. You are the uh, special. <laughs> I'm very special. <laughs> very special. But um, if, if, you know, if people doubt that there's a sincerity to my performance, I, I just know that it's like I just remember it as being this really difficult moment did it put you off your game did you feel taken out of it or or, or what did that do no it just heightened my uh, what's the word that I'm looking for um uh, intent I guess is the word you know my you know when I first started doing the show it was urgent yeah urgency and then through performing it, you know, the urgency sort of gets sort of takes a back seat and it's just being in the room and I wouldn't say going through the motions. It was never going through the motions with that show, but I, I understood it and I got into a pattern. I could, it could build a sense of safety. 
but with my mum in the crowd, that all fell away and it was like I was performing it for the first time and I, I felt so vulnerable and but I had to say what I had to say and that urgency that I had in the beginning just returned in a flood and that's, that's what comes across in the, in the filming of it, I think. What did she say to you afterwards, Hannah, about the show? Well, we, we filmed two shows. Um, so I didn't get to see her straight afterwards. Um, my brother and my sister were there with her and a good friend. Uh, so while I was on stage doing it all again, Mum, uh, Mum sat on the steps of the opera house and and had a puffer, as she calls it, <laughs> cigarette, <laughs> and cried a lot. And then after I finished the second show, we all had drinks mm. and had a nice time and went to bed. <laughs> Is performing Douglas was that a very different experience? It looks like you're just having a hoot on stage in Douglas. Yeah, that's what the show was designed for, for both me and the audience. It's supposed to be, you know, fun, not stressful and a catharsis of sorts and also a way of saying, you know, comedy can be lots of different things. You know, there's this inherent contradiction in any form of expression. So I, I, I wanted to make something that was starkly different to Nanette as much as it could be coming from me like it still had to be true to who I am so not suddenly starting to do (laughs) mime and is that is that uh Douglas I can hear in the background yeah yeah they're ready for you to go and take a sock or have a play yeah he's bored (laughs) I better let you go (laughs) Hannah it's been really great to speak with you for conversations thanks so much for coming on the show uh my pleasure thank you I recorded this conversation with Hannah Gadsby in 2020 and Hannah has just released a memoir about the journey to her very personal brand of comedy. It's called 10 Steps to Nanette. I'm Sarah Konoski. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of conversations with Sarah Konoski. For more conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Hi, I'm Andy Matthews. And I'm Alistair Trombley-Birchall. And we're here to remind you that the pop test, that comedy science quiz show from Radio National, is back. Each week we pick a science topic and ask comedians and scientists important questions like Why might you stir your tea at 28,000 RPM? Where on earth does time travel the slowest? And what's so suspicious about being left-handed? With guests Sean McAuliffe, Claire Hooper, Cal Wilson, Dr Alan Duffy and Sammy Shah. The Pop Test. Hear it now on the ABC Listen app or almost anywhere you get your podcasts. Podcasts.